The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, undersea cables and cybersecurity, a new strategy to secure underwater infrastructure that is vital to a secure and interconnected world. But first, joining us is Heather Penny, a retired United States Air Force fighter pilot who is now a senior fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. She is the co-author, along with Mitchell Dean, Dave Deptula, of the report, Speed is Life, Accelerating the Air Force's Ability to Adapt and Win, that takes the Air Force to task for being too bureaucratic and too slow for its own good when it comes to cyber and software development. Their message comes as a new Air Force Secretary, Frank Kendall, is moving aggressively to drive change, along with his equally change-minded chief, General C.Q. Brown, who has made his mantra, accelerate change or die. The report also closely mirrors the resignation letter of the service's chief, software officer, Nicholas Shalon, who recently uh, resigned. Heather, thanks so very much for joining us this morning. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, great, great to have you on. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control, one of the uh, topics uh, today. And our coverage at the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, while our naval coverage was sponsored and is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine. Um, Heather, a fascinating report, uh, spot on the mark, uh, consistent with some of the events that we're seeing now, right, with uh, Secretary Kendall and Chief Brown uh, driving this idea of rapid change. And yet we have the services chief software officer, somebody key for DevSecOps uh, for the department, submitting a resignation letter, effectively saying all the things that you guys said in, in your report. Walk us through first what the service is getting wrong uh, as the foundation for my subsequent question, which will be, what does the service need to change in order to get this right? Let's start with what's wrong. You bet, Vago. So, you know, what's interesting is that, or ironic, is that software is one of the most malleable and adaptive capabilities that we have, yet at the same time, we're treating it just like it's hardware. So we've got, you know, really bureaucratic barriers to being able to exploit the true potential of software. You know, the first one is the color of money. And, you know, this is statutory. This is the, the things that, um, that Congress really controls. It provides them oversight and allows them to either speed up or slow down how we execute programs. But the color of money is fundamentally too slow to be able to um, keep the pace of software as fast as we need it to be. You know, the second piece of it, bureaucratically speaking, is we're not managing uh, the software the way that we need to. Yeah, I get DevSecOps and that's fantastic, but we are, we're treating software like it's a monolith. And there are so many different kinds of software that need different management um, organizations in the order to be able to go fast. And then finally, the process, which we use it, we have a very centralized approach to software. And this is connected to how we culturally approach software as well. We want to be able to control it because that manages risk and allows us to really 
um, tightly oversee uh, what we're doing with that software. But in reality, unless we push that forward to the edge, we're not going to be able to get the speed that we need. Um, and and what are some of the specific things the Air Force uh, has to do differently, right? I mean, this whole uh, change of fast drive uh, is a bit of a cultural challenge, right? I mean, from a leadership perspective, everybody admires where the chief is. Uh, inform your superiors if there is much needed change, execute it in any military organization. Mm, that works, I think, if everybody has a similar approach to driving change. Uh, not everybody is as, uh, as, as, as progressive in their leadership uh, skills. But on a more uh, boilerplate uh, fashion, what are some of the things the service has to do differently in order to get this software piece of it right? Because you're absolutely right. There is a tendency of thinking about it as physical hardware, which is much harder to change than software, which is actually remarkably easier to change. Yeah, software is remarkably adaptive. But to go back to what you were talking about, Vago, regarding change and, and what the chief has been asking people to do, um, you know, as an aside, this is an issue of risk. And right now we see a culture within the Air Force that is fundamentally risk averse. Um, so that's something that will need to be changed. Um, but when we're talking about software, the, you know, the advice that I would give to the, the new leadership, leadership team now is that, first of all, they need to change the bureaucracy. Um, you know, what you saw with Nicholas Shalon and his frustration in being fundamentally unable to affect change is that as a chief software officer there, he really had no authority to be able to force that change. So unless you change the bureaucracy, change the organizations, lines of authority, change the incentives and so forth, you're not going to be able to actually implement change or have lasting change. So the bureaucratic structures um, have to change. And, you know, again, it's not just an, uh, an investment. So we can't just throw money at this. There has to be a cultural shift as well. And this gets back to the willingness to accept risk, where we need to um, place that risk, what things do we need to hold higher up and more centralized uh, because of the enterprise impact. And then again, part of this all with, with the investment, the cultural shift and the bureaucracy has to do with understanding there are fundamentally different kinds of software. We use them in different ways and we can't treat them like they're all the same. One thing that needs to be done is, is working with Congress to change the color of money to allow the speed of money to match the speed of software. And what we know that Congress needs to have oversight in what the servicers, services are doing. So that's not what we're arguing against, but we need to be able to match the pace of adaptation if we're going to be able to really be able to employ software um, as the combat capability um, that, that it is. Uh, you know, and finally, and this is a little bit off to the side, but it's crucially important, we have to be able to address the issues of clearances. Um, this is coming, rising up to the top because, you know, special access programs and the more secretive we are about our capabilities, the less we are able to integrate them into our routine training and operations. And a lot of what we're seeing going on in cyber right now, and this is related to the software piece, is that it can be highly, highly classified from an operational perspective. And so until we're able to wrap our arms around with how to address those clearance issues to make these capabilities more available to the warfighter, we're gonna to continue to have problems employing that kind of software. Um, but um, you know, this is an issue that 
uh, I've discussed with, um, you know, it sounds a bit name droppy, but so folks um, the tune into some of the conversations we've had with uh, Jim Clapper, uh, the former uh, director of national intelligence, as well as Admiral Mike Rogers, uh, and, and many others has been that we overclassify. And so as a consequence, Right. Military aviation has improved because we share widely the lessons learned in cyber. We have a tendency of slapping a classification label on it. And then actually people don't necessarily learn lessons that they should. Do we need to change that dynamic a little bit and make it a little bit more? Right? I'm, I know I'm talking to a, a high time pilot here, um, both for uh, single engine and multi engine. Uh, right. Given your F-16 and, and G-100 experience. But do, do we need. Do we need to have a different fundamental approach to this? And is overclassification actually hurting us in this process? Not just for the development side of it, but from the lessons learned side of it. Well, and not just even from the, the development and lessons learned, but also the employment side of it as well. I mean, we hear this across the board, across the ranks um, and, and across different uh, expertise, is that when you have a highly classified capability that we want to protect um, and no one really knows about it, then you can't take that into consideration when you're developing how we integrate together as, as a service or as a joint force. And so we can't have these highly specialized programs parachute in at the last minute and say, hey, I'm you know magic pixie dust. And then we look at it and go, well, yeah, but we didn't plan for you. We have no way to be able to integrate with you. And this might be such a game-changing capability that it fundamentally changes our operations, um, the operational concept or the tactics, techniques, and procedures. So um, the overclassification isn't just a problem with the uh, with um, the development; it's a problem in the operational side of it as well. And this um, isn't just cyber; it goes it extends to space as well as some of our more conventional type capabilities. Let me ask you um, briefly about um, systems uh, and SCADA vulnerabilities. Right? I mean, in the underlying systems uh, of our Air Force, of our Navy, and Army are. Mil countless millions of chips and computers, each one of which poses a potential vulnerability. And the big challenge that folks, even in the department, admit is that we're not spending nearly, it, it's not a very expensive problem, but it's one that will still require resources. So you may have to buy one fewer ship or dozens of fewer airplanes to be able to address this. Why is this proving to be so difficult? Because it doesn't matter if you've got the world's best uh, bombers, if they're stuck on the ramp at Barksdale at the end of the day, because or or knocked out of the sky, quite literally, or somehow mission incapacitated, uh, because your adversary may have software access to the underlying control systems of these weapons. What do we need to be doing differently on that front? Uh, because I think that folks are not regarding the cyber as a weapons vulnerability at this point. Okay, Vago. So what you're talking about here. Um, is a trusted foundry issue where we're able to validate that the chips that we have are actually secure. And a trusted foundry is a chip manufacturing installation where we have, secu we have secure custody of the chip as it goes through the manufacturing process. And the lot that allows us to ensure that there are no back doors that an adversary can access. So there's the chip piece of this. It's important because software can't always mitigate those back doors and the chips. But we don't really don't have many trusted foundries here within the United States. And so in order to be able to 
get the volume of processing that we need, we have to outsource the chip manufacturing. This is a major vulnerability for us. What we'll need to be able to do as we move into the future is one of two things. First, build more uh, chip manufacturing here within the United States, but also we need to begin thinking about doing tech refresh at a rate that allows us to put new chips and new processors in our weapon systems faster than our adversaries can exploit that. Um, and uh, certainly the administration uh, is looking to do that, obviously put it parking uh, tens of billions of dollars aside. I think it's $52 billion uh, for the U.S. Uh, chip industry. Very, very briefly, I know you're having these conversations as you guys do at Mitchell with senior leaders. Is there a sense that senior that this is an issue that's on senior leadership uh, radar? We did talk to Lieutenant General Tim Hawk, uh, the 16th Air Force uh, commander, and he was, you know, he, he made it abundantly clear that it's something that's on his radar screen as well. But is this something where there is finally going to be greater senior leadership focus on to uh, drive these kind of improvements that otherwise could undermine the efficacy of even the best combat air forces? I think they absolutely are focused on this. I think they're highly aware of it. And I think that their, their strategy for moving forward, at least within their, their perspective of accelerate, change, or lose is absolutely right. The question is whether or not they're going to, whether or not they will be able to bring it to close. So can they implement the bureaucratic and process changes necessary in order to be able to achieve the speed that we need and change the culture so that it's appropriate and outlasts the personalities. And I think we see this again, where we see Nicholas Chalant, um, you know, departing the building because he was frustrated at his lack of authority, his inability to be able to, to break through the bureaucracy and change processes. So this cannot be personality-based. We can't go forward with software and ship czars and things like that because they're basically good idea fairies. They're not really able to change the bureaucracy. We need to be able to change that structure, change the color of money, and then change how we think about software, realizing that it's not all monolithic. There are different types. They require different processes, uh, different approaches, and, um, and that's going to be essential for them to be able to really implement the kind of change they're talking about. And, and uh, as, uh, as, as you guys uh, write, right at the end, if you want to get to this uh, advanced battle management system, uh, which is a key component of the Joint All Domain Command and Control System, if you don't address this, you're never going to get to that uh, network agility that you need to connect both uh, what are existing platforms with future capabilities that you need in order to better integrate the force. Absolutely. Heather, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on and look forward to having you on again uh, soon to talk about your new acquisition report. Great. Thank you, Vago. Looking forward to it. Thanks again. And joining us today is Justin Sherman, a fellow with the Atlantic Council Think Tank and a contributor to Wired Magazine, who is the author of a new council report, Cyber Defense Across the Ocean Floor, the Geopolitics of Submarine Cable Security. Justin, a topic near and dear uh, to my heart, certainly. Thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure, you know, um, I mean, no disrespect to anybody in uh, the cyber and space communities, right? I mean, but the, the modern day parallel to this is that, you know, amateurs talk cyber and, and space while professionals talk undersea cables uh, that actually uh, through which, you know, 95% uh, of uh, internet traffic uh, goes and, and that 
is even increasing, right? I mean, we can't lay cables fast enough. Uh, once upon a time, great powers dominated cable laying in World War I. It was the British, uh, you know, where there were cable wars uh, at the height of it, where Germans were cutting British cables. British cut all of German cables, I think, except one, uh, so they could uh, track uh, German traffic. The United States was a cable laying power. And now I think most Americans would be surprised to know we only have two cabling ships, one on each coast, and the Chinese actually dominate uh, this uh, space, including the, the international bodies. What does the audience need to know about the infrastructure, who controls it, and what the risks are? You mentioned the term cyberspace, and I think that's a really important uh, entryway here because we can often forget when we use terms like cyberspace, cloud, uh, you know, they sound very abstract. We can forget that the internet depends on physical infrastructure to run. It needs routers, it needs cables. And as you said, these submarine cables long predate the internet. They were carrying electric telegraph communications, voice calls between continents. And today they carry upwards of 95% of internet traffic between continents. So they quite literally are vital to the internet's function. Taking one of these out isn't going to bring down the entire global web, but you know it would do some serious damage and you know, if several of these stopped working or there was some big earthquake or, or attack or something that took them out, that would seriously impact everything from business transactions to government document sharing um, that happens over the internet. So the way to think about this is that this is vital infrastructure and it is vital infrastructure for the internet. Uh, and so, you know, it's a global network. That means that many companies have long been involved in building it out. These cables, because they connect continents, are very long, they're very expensive, they can cost hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases to develop and lay. And so you get situations where lots of different uh, companies from many different countries are investing in these cables and building them. And as you said, we are building them at faster and faster rates every year. Um, but the challenge comes with the fact that among those companies are some in authoritarian countries that uh, are you know, quasi arms of the state, or you have companies that are deploying software to manage the cables and the software is not secure. So as we have this vital infrastructure developed, we also see in tandem these cybersecurity risks uh, accelerating. Uh, and um, what are the Chinese doing that is uh, so concerning uh, at the end of the day, right? I mean, because some are sort of natural extensions of China's leading um, uh, role uh, in the field, obviously driven by strategic interest, right? I mean, they see themselves as a, as a great power, uh, but there are also some nefarious activity we should worry about, right? I mean, the Chinese, uh, the Russians in particular uh, have done um, some cable uh, related uh, submarine operations that we have found uh, troubling over the years. Uh, you know, every once in a while, cable is cut because of an anchor falling. We're not sure if it was an anchor falling or, or malicious activity. What are some of the risks in this space that folks need to be aware of? There's a lot of talk of cable disruption. Yeah, most of the documented cases we see are just accidents. Some, you know, person driving a ship didn't look and see that there's a cable and they just plow right through it. Uh, or there's an underwater earthquake, but there are a lot of concerns around espionage, particularly with uh, governments, right? I mean, every state in the world taps into these cables. The NSA, you know, has been doing it for years, for example, but uh, the concern, I think, in particular with 
Russia, as you said, there has been a lot of Russian military activity in submarines around key cables uh, in their sort of near abroad sphere, as well as in other parts of the world, uh, which has certainly gotten the attention of, of NATO uh, and the US in the last few years. Um, but the, the Chinese government uh, investment in cables just vastly outpaces that of any company in Russia. Uh, China Mobile, China Unicom, and China Telecom, which are all state-owned, uh, have massively increased their investments in new cable projects in the last few years. So that's one potential vector uh, of influence because, of course, when a cable touches your shoreline, you need a company there to manage that landing point. And with growing ownership in cables, that's uh, you know sort of a potential espionage risk there from the Chinese government. Same thing goes for shaping the layout of the internet generally, because, of course, again, the internet uh, depends on this physical infrastructure to route traffic. And so if you're pouring tons of money into where cables are being built, you can have a greater amount of influence over which areas of the world are connected um, and how quickly. So that's on the cable ownership front, is that there's a lot of Chinese government involvement in investing in cable development. But there's also the fact that you need companies to actually build and lay the physical cables themselves, as you mentioned. And in this case, Huawei Marine, we've all heard of Huawei, uh, is sort of the Huawei entity that does this. And they are heavily involved in building cables around the world. An FCC report, uh, I think it was last maybe October or November, uh, said that Huawei Marine has built or repaired uh, basically a quarter of the world's cables. Uh, and so when we think about tapping that infrastructure, actually putting wiretapping equipment on the cable or in the cable, that of course becomes a concern as well um, because Huawei Marine is so plugged into literally the construction of the cable network. So there's a, spe there's a spectrum of risks. Um, but I think really because of the rising Chinese government investment, there's more reason for concern. Uh, and, and obviously, right, I mean, what people also tend to forget is uh, if the cable terminus uh, is someplace, you, you don't have to tap it at the bottom of the ocean. You can also pull signal off uh, at each one of these terminus points, uh, given that a lot of them certainly in the Pacific go through China, uh, right. for, uh, for example, right? I mean, so you don't have to get into a fancy uh, tap uh, I was going to say induction tap. Obviously, that doesn't work as well uh, when when light is is traveling through a fiber fiber optic cable. Vis-a-vis um, -vis what you know, Seawolf, Parchi, Halibut, and other uh, submarines were doing during the the height mm. of the Cold War. Um, so what it so how do we need to respond to this, Justin? Right? Because I I mean I think we have a two part problem. One is uh, in the immediate sense, while there are U.S. bodies and oversight authorities. The, these are vestigial. We only have two uh, cable laying ships in the United States, one on each coast, as I mentioned. Um, and then there's sort of the strategic long term on what the United States and its allies need to do to indemnify uh, their risks and the costs associated with it. So so what's the short term stuff that has to happen? Because the bigger solution is a multi-year, multi-billion, tens of billions of dollar investment that need to be made to reconstitute some infrastructure that actually does not exist uh, in the United States or our allies. 
It's a really important question. And as you said, it's it's a complex problem, you know, not least because again, many of these cables, there are th when I, the data I compiled for this report, there were 383 different entities around the world that collectively owned 475 cables. So there really are a ton of different, you know, private companies, state-owned firms, international consortia that own the network. And so in that sense, you really do have a, a, a challenging set of governance problems when you're talking about something like, let's make it more secure uh, without even getting into what that means. So on the U.S. side, two of the biggest things I think are, one, we have a committee in the executive branch that's responsible for screening foreign telecom projects, including cables that touch the U.S. for security risks. This was for years called Team Telecom, and this was changed into a much longer sounding, uh, longer name organization under the Trump administration. But the problem is that group does not have the funding or the authorities necessary to comprehensively screen for these kinds of cable risks to say, you know, there's a new cable project making contact with the US, the Chinese government is a key investor. What is the security risk? So that's sort of the first thing is Congress needs to both give more money to that organization and also ensure that it has greater authority uh, because right now it does not have statutory authority and there are a lot of you know sort of problems we can get into with the review process itself. But the second main thing to do domestically is around the cable ship security program. So this was authorized in the 2020 NDAA and is in the process of being stood up by the Department of Transportation. And what this does is right now, it uh, will have two privately owned government licensed ships on standby 24 seven to repair cables that are damaged relevant to US national security. So that I think is a great example of, there's a lot of challenges with cable repair. Again, it's generally good that the private sector is involved in building out and, and managing this infrastructure, but there probably will be cases where we need stuff urgently repaired. And so the US government has said, we're gonna step in. So, you know, watching the progress of that program and seeing if it needs more funding in the future is a big thing. But then the last thing I'll end on is the international sort of strategic question that you asked, which of course is very tricky to answer. And I think one is we need to do a better job working with uh, partners and allies around capacity building and irrespective of you know particular governments or not, just making sure that the core infrastructure is more secure. Because again, lots of companies want remote internet connected software to manage landing stations, for example, they plug this stuff in, it's really badly secured. And now suddenly we're opening up a landing station to somebody hacking it and taking a bunch of data or hacking it and actually physically disrupting a signal or ransomwareing that software even. So that's sort of the first thing is when we talk about capacity building, we got to make sure that we're focusing on cable security as well, in addition to telecoms and 5G and all that stuff. And the second thing I would say is focusing more on norms and, uh, you know, building costs 
for those who would try to disrupt these cables. We're so interconnected and interdependent globally on the internet today that it's not just a matter of economic and national security for one country if somebody were to cut off a cable during a war, like you referenced has happened many times before. It also matters because that disruption is gonna impact the rest of the globe. And so that's sort of, I think the second big international thing is developing clear, you know, sort of rules of the road against states that might seek to build that disruption capacity. And, and um, I, I need to get your sense on the cost of, of all this, right? Um, any national leader will want to know, okay, well, look, how much, uh, how much will this investment uh, be, right, for any strategic-minded, um, you know, member of Congress or anybody else, right? They're going to say, okay, well, look, how much is this going to cost us at the end of the day to address this challenge? From your perspective, what's, what's the price tag? Because investments like this, you don't realize your adversary has surged ahead of you um, until you begin to figure out how to address it yourself, right? And then you realize like, holy cow, uh, they've put a lot of money over a long period of time. What's that investment figure that we need to be thinking about? It depends what we're talking about. So the cable ship security program, uh, I think you know, roughly is, is a, you know, several million dollars at this point. Again, like I said, it's still being launched by the Department of Transportation and it's at this point only going to have two of these two of these ships on standby to repair cables as sort of an initial rollout test phase, if you will, of the program. So expanding that and making that a bigger uh, investment would take many more millions of dollars. That's just one example. But if we're thinking about capacity building, there really is a lot of space for investment and it's hard to get some of these companies to care about securing, like I said, landing station software, other things when it's a convenient tool, they can just tack onto the technology. And so, you know, incentivizing the companies to do that can be a very costly um, venture. In terms of capacity building at large, of course, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, should the US government be contesting uh, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, which is also part of the way the Chinese government invests in cables. I mean, that clearly would take billions of dollars. I mean, you can get very expensive very quickly, like you're saying. So, you know, I think the key here really for the U.S., again, recognizing the benefits of keeping a lot of this in industry's hands is looking more to incentives and collaboration uh, rather than you know, the U.S. government coming in and trying to completely take over uh, certain aspects of this cable network build out. Justin, thanks very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure uh, having you on. Great report and uh, uh, suggest that folks uh, check it out and, and think about uh, the, the scenarios and points you're making. Very well done. Congratulations. Thanks for having me. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.